Off-Broadway is the place where you can really take risks. You have audiences of people who really want to be there. It's a place for theater lovers to see shows and for real artists to make shows. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, and this is Live at the Lortel, a podcast all about off-Broadway theater. Each week, we give our listeners unique access to theater makers currently working off-Broadway. Please visit our website, liveatthelortel.com, where you can find lists of upcoming guests. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we can't do our podcast in front of a live audience, but we didn't want to stop bringing you something new to listen to while you're stuck at home. You can submit a question via Twitter for one of our upcoming guests. Just tell us your question and who it's for using the hashtag liveatthelortel. We will try our best to get your question on the show. Okay, let's welcome our guest, Michael Yuri. Hi, thank you. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for doing this. My hope was that we could do it live, but hopefully next season when you have other things coming up, we'll get you back into the theater and we can do it live with an audience. So with your producing partner, I know, let's just go right into it. Tell me about, I was lucky enough to be able to go see some of the shows last year at the Pride Festival at Rattlestick. I know that's the plans going in for June. Can you talk a little bit about the festival and how it started? Yeah, so Doug Nevin and I, we had been kicking around this idea of trying to come up with a space for queer plays. Obviously there's no shortage of queer theater and we would never try to imply that any theater isn't producing queer work because they all are, they all do. But what we were starting to realize is that all queer plays were getting lumped into the same category and the community is so very diverse that we thought, is there a place where we can put all these plays, these very different plays from these different kinds of people, races and genders and, and socioeconomic backgrounds and where we can put them all together and get everybody in the community in a shared space rather than having these wildly different plays sort of having to like compete for the slots at the institutions that are, you know, always good about, I mean, you can't do theater without queer people. I think no one uh, thinks otherwise. Um, <laughs> so, we've been, so we've been sort of toying with this idea of like, what, what could that be? What would that look like? How would that start? And our friend, Daniela Topol, who is the artistic director of the Rattlestick Theater, she knew we were working on this and we were, you know, picking her brain about what that might be. And she came to us with an idea last year. She, as the artistic director of a West Village theater, felt very strongly that she needed to do something to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Stonewall and World Pride. And so she asked us if we would like to team up with her and help her program whatever that might be. We started thinking that we might do four to six readings of seminal queer plays that kind of told the story of the 50 years since Stonewall, trying to like chronicle 50 years of theatrical pride with plays. But very quickly we realized that like looking back was not going to represent the diversity of our current community the plays that we were going to find over those 50 years that really, you know, sort of survived and became seminal. While they might represent certain groups of the community and they might represent what was commercially successful in the theater, they weren't going to represent all the letters, all the races, all the genders, and all the, uh, you know, all the backgrounds. We definitely wanted to, to, to look back and share some of those plays like we did As Is and we did Haunted Hosts, which was a play that was actually happening 
1969. Mm -hmm. um, and we did Last Summer at Bluefish Cove, which was this wonderful play from the 80s about a, a group of women. And, and we did Brave Smiles by the Five Lesbian Brothers and The Last Sunday in June by John Tolins. And But we also knew that we needed to look forward and look around at the current moment. And so what we thought was going to be four to six readings ended up being 19 readings of different plays and some musicals and some evening of shorts and we had over 200 queer artists coming through the rattlestick over five days it ended up being way more than any of us thought but thankfully doug and i met met up with nick mayo who's an old friend of mine from juilliard who and we did how to succeed together he was in musicals and, and he was an amazing actor and then he left new york for a few years and was doing a lot of event planning and a lot of festival producing and he came back to new york and came back into my life right around the time that Doug and I were trying to figure out what this was going to be and how the hell we were going to do it. Doug's a lawyer. I'm an actor. Like we only had so much experience and expertise in what producing a festival was going to be like. And here comes Nick, who's not only an extremely talented actor and with great taste and experience producing and directing, but also he's quite literally organized festivals. He was perfect. So the three of us with Daniela really tackled this project last year and it came off really great. And we were so happy with how many people came. Every meeting was sold out and we got all kinds of, we got amazing Tony winners and and a bunch of new artists, and we, and, and we learned so many new names and knew very quickly that we wanted to do it again. Now, the hope is that we're allowed to congregate again at the end of June, and the festival can go forward as planned, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. And the last week of June is when we're scheduled, five, five days again. The church next door, St. John's of the Village, they opened their doors to us last year, and we did a few in their mm -hmm. really beautiful gallery space, which is literally next door to the Rattlestick. And we're going to get that even more this year. We'll have even, even more opportunities in there. So we can do more plays. And we opened submissions this year. We got around 200 submissions, blind submissions from people all over the place. A lot of incredible works. It was really hard to yeah, yeah. narrow it down. And we're still figuring out what the programming is, but we have a lot of very, very cool plays, very diverse plays. I mean, the talent in the community is mind-blowing. And... I mean, we could do a festival of 20 plays just from the past, much less looking forward in the future, all these new plays that will be world premieres or, or New York premieres. And if we can't congregate in June, we are not giving up. We, we are not. We have no what's idea. Your, what's your plan there? Well, the plan is we're looking at rain, rain dates. We're also keeping an eye on what everyone else is doing. You know, obviously, we have absolutely no interest in putting anyone at risk. So if people are not congregating, we won't ask anyone to. But we're looking at what the theaters are doing, what Broadway's doing, of course. We're lucky because these are readings. So, you know, we can do a lot of work before we have to actually be in the room together. We can do casting, we can, we can pick directors, we can even start, if we have to, maybe we even Zoom rehearse. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility. And then when we need to be in the room together, we only really need a week or two of lead time before the festival. So we're lucky that way. We don't need four weeks of rehearsal, you know. And we're at the Rattlestick and at St. John's in the Village. So we're not asking for groups of 500 to get together. Right, it's a, small, it's a smaller theater. And I can say, you know, our mutual friend Lou, it was so phenomenal to come back and see him play those parts again in As Is. That was the first, I think, gay play that I saw as a young teenager 
I'm really making myself younger than I am. All right, I was an older teenager, whatever it was. And then to be able to see him portrayed again and the response from the audience and to hear William Hoffman's play read again, it seems so timely actually right now with what's going on in the world and the pandemic and the the horror and the the scariness. And can we get HIV by putting our hands on on a counter or holding someone's hand or kissing someone? I mean, now with the corona, I mean, it's scaring the F out out of all of us, just like it was in the 80s with the AIDS crisis. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience now over these past couple of weeks. I mean, I've been following on Instagram. I liked your beard, actually, but this is great, too. I think it looks great, but I like the beard, and I love the banter that you and Ryan have on Instagram. Can you talk about your experience? I mean, I know you just closed Grand Horizons. Yeah, so we closed Grand Horizons a little over a month ago now, and those last couple of weeks, people were talking about it. People were, had started to talk about the coronavirus and had started to get nervous about it. And I remember the last week of Grand Horizons, when an audience member would cough, it was different. You know, we're so used to people coughing in the theater, and as actors, like, It can drive us crazy. I mean, certain plays are more frustrating than others. And, you know, somebody coughs on a punchline or or a setup. It can can (laughs) really... Definitely. Yeah. And I'm pretty good at like knowing, you know, actors get a sixth sense about coughing and you can actually feel it coming. You know when someone's going to cough and you can like sort of... But it was getting... It was different. People were coughing less. And when they did cough, it was a bigger deal. I mean, in fact, I remember one night Ben McKenzie said he thought he heard someone in the audience. He heard someone cough and he thought he heard someone say, go home to them. It was getting intense. And then the week after we closed, I went to see a lot of plays because I was about to leave for LA and I wanted to see everything before I left so I didn't miss anything. So I saw a bunch of plays the week after we closed Grand Horizons and I noticed a marked difference and how much people were coughing. And I think that's because most of the coughing that goes on in the theater is unnecessary. People cough not because they need to, but because they're whatever. And uncomfortable or yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah, or it's like it's not a, it's not something you need to cough or clear your throat. It's just something you need to like swallow a few times and or like go mm, and like get it out. And you don't actually need to cough. You just are used to being able to. And now that we're in a society where coughing is is like a, a taboo, I noticed less coughing, and that when somebody did cough, it was clearly like out of you know like a choke. They, they're choking or they inhaled spit or whatever, like that kind of cough that you can't... Out of necessity, they had to cough. Yeah, right. And that there were not really people who seemed sick. People who seemed sick were not coming out. And that was very interesting that last week. And then I saw, you know, Ryan and I had our my last dinner in a restaurant. We went to Chez Josephine mm-hmm. and then saw a Little Shop of Horrors. And it was wonderful. And, and then we raced home and avoided talking to people or shaking hands. Because it was already happening. It was people who were already concerned about that. And the next morning I had to go to LA because I was shooting a pilot and I thought I've got to go to LA. And I mean, I didn't call it this, but what it was, was quarantine myself. I said, I got to go to LA and stay home and not get sick. Because if I get sick, then this pilot is not going to happen. And I want to make sure we get it in under the wire in case this keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so that was on a Monday. Wednesday, the NBA shut down. Thursday, Broadway shut down. And Friday, I came home. 
because they put our pilot on ice and and I wanted to, you know, be with Ryan and our pets and in our space. So I came right home and that was almost three weeks ago. I mean, that would be tonight. That'll be three weeks. It's incredible how time is flying by. It's like we're living our worst nightmare. I mean, look, I love my husband more than anything together 25 years. But, you know, as much as you love the person that you're with, it's it's a very tough time. And we, we came down to our place in Miami. I kind of felt like there's more room to move here. But now, you know, I'm homesick for New York, no matter what's going on there or, or what. Speaking of Grand Horizons, I saw the second to last matinee. And I got one of the last seats in the front. Oh, that show, incredible. And who comes down and sits next to me but Tina Louise from oh. Gilligan's Island. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> She, you know, she sits down, she introduces herself. We start talking a little bit about the play and she's got like a little trickle in her throat and I give her a, a mint or a cough drop and we're talking a little bit about, you know, what's going on in the world and people are coughing around us. And it was incredible to get insight from someone like that for yeah. how she knew she needed to go home and isolate and, um, and knew that she was going to be kind of locked away in her home for a while. She kind of had a premonition about it. By the way, she loved the show. Good. And so did I. What was it like working with Jane Alexander and Cromwell and the whole cast and Ashley and everybody was just incredible. It was very cool. You know, we, Alexander was your mother. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> She was an incredible, thoughtful person. I mean, we've stayed in touch in the last you know, month. She's well, she's in Nova Scotia where she lives and she's got a dog and a beach and she's isolated and she's very well. And so is James Cromwell. He's up in the woods somewhere. And, and we've all kept in touch, you know, Ashley and I became really good friends and I'm in touch with her almost every day. And it was a great group of people who were on the same page, pretty much from the word go. And Bess Wall, who wrote it, such an amazing writer. And we went through a lot of changes, especially in previews, like things were changing a lot and everybody rolled with it. And Lee Silverman, our director, was so expert at getting us where we needed to be as the play changed. But Jane, like, you know, I have to say, like Jane had so much to do in the play and so much coming at her. And you learn so much in rehearsal, but especially with a comedy, you learn so much more in previews because the things that people laugh at in rehearsal for a comedy are different, just 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 plain different than what they're going to laugh at when they're seeing it for the first time. I mean, most of the time when you're getting laughs in rehearsal, it's because you're trying something brand new or messing up. And everyone in the room is like, hey, you messed up. And, and that's, that's fun. And like, we enjoy that. But that's not helpful for when we go on stage, because that's not what they're going to laugh at. They're watching it. They're taking it for face value. They're not laughing at what's different or what's new. So doing it for the audience with Jane was so eye-opening because she's such, she's, she's so comfortable in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, like, she was able to, I feel like once we were there with an audience, she was at home and she was able to really play and open up. And the things that would come out of her were so exciting. Mm -hmm. And watching her decide where to take a breath or, or when she wanted to like delay a laugh or kill a laugh or get a laugh, you know, watching her like work that out was so delightful. My favorite moment with Jane yeah. was we were at least a month, maybe even two months into the run 
And do you remember at the end of the first scene, not the first, not the first little scene where she says, I would like to get a divorce, but the, the next scene where the kids come home and, and, and we all sort of fight and everything. And then dad tells this joke mm-hmm. about the nuns and St. Peter and how <laughs> any part of the nun that had touched a man's member had to wash in holy water. And yeah. the first one washes her pinky, the second one washes her hand, and then the third one is about to say what she needs to wash. And another nun runs up and says, wait a minute, if I'm going to have to gargle with that stuff, at least let me do it before Sister Christine puts her ass in it. <laughs> Hilarious joke, right? And we heard it every day. And that's Beth, is that Bess's joke? I mean, 100%? Like, no, I'd heard that joke before. I, mean, I, I, yeah, I yeah. haven't heard it before. I love that joke. Yeah, she didn't write that joke. Sidebar, what's brilliant about Bess Wallace, she doesn't write jokes. I mean, obviously, like, that's a joke joke. Mm-hmm. But her writing isn't... You know, she doesn't write jokes. Like, you know, like, even though it, the play got compared to Neil Simon a lot, the jokes all come out of what the audience knows of the people. It's brilliant. And the truth and the reality of what you guys are doing is, right. and the heightened reality of it is, was brilliant. I'm sorry, go on. And the agony. Anyway, okay, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, of course. So every night after that scene, Jane would go into the garage. There would be a sort of transition. I would go out the front door and James Cromwell would go up the stairs and we would all kind of end up meeting backstage at around the same time. And one night, and the joke is just happening. You know, the audience goes crazy. There's applause, you know, and we meet backstage. Usually Jamie Cromwell and I would sort of touch base, mention, you know, like, that's a good crowd or, or you know, there must be a lot of nuns out there or whatever, you know, like whatever like we would say to each other quietly backstage. And one night, Jamie's coming down to the back stairs, and Jane's coming around, and I'm changing clothes, and Jane is in hysterics. And we're both like, what? What's going on? What's wrong? What happened? What happened? What, 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 are, you, what are you laughing at? And she says, it takes me so long to get jokes. <laughs> she had just gotten the joke after months. We've been hearing that joke for literally months, and she just... Got it. <laughs> it was so sweet. It's so adorable. <laughs> That's I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a difficult joke, but I guess like if you're not, I mean, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's very funny. I mean, maybe she was just like so in character that. Right, like, exactly. You didn't hear it. You know, she's man, his jokes or him. Uh, it's such an incredible. What, what did you think we were all laughing at? <laughs> <laughs> to work with masters like that in a rehearsal room and on stage. Do you, as an actor, obviously these are gems that you just put in your pocket and, and the experience itself is incredible, but what have you really learned like from Jane or, or James or some of these incredible masters that you've, you've really worked with some incredible people yeah. that have been in the business a long time and are real masters of their craft. Share with me a gem of what you really take away. And my question is, is it difficult to take it in, like, at that time? Um, yes and no. You know, like, there are things that, like, I'll find myself going back to a lot. You know, like, things I'll think about a lot. Like, oh, that was such a good thing, such a good lesson. That, like, you know, I'll remember, like, oh, wow, when I was in that play with Austin Pendleton, he did this, and, and that was amazing. And I, I will say, though, that the thing that comes up the most with theater, with the, the-, the like amazing theater actors, idols that I've worked with is, this is 100% true with Austin, Patti LuPone, I did a play with, 
Mercedes Rule, who was my mom in Torch Song. These actors that are just so like iconic and and really creatures of the theater, you know, whether they like are also in movies or television or whatever, they're really like meant for the stage and their best work is on the stage. The thing that like I always find with these kinds of actors is that there's no such thing as phoning it in at all. And that's true. I mean, like it's rare that I've worked with an actor who I feel like isn't giving all that they've got on a given night. You know what I mean? I mean, cause like, obviously like, you know, eight shows a week, you can't always be, you know, it's, it's just like, it's just not always the, you know, it doesn't always go the way you wish it went. And that's just the way it is. And that's why we keep going back because, you know, like, you know, on TV and film, you do it until you feel like you got it. And in theater, some nights you get it and, and other nights it's not as good. And, you know, you, in the long run, you kind of will get into like, like a stride and it's basically what you intend it to be every night. But even still, like there'll be nights where it's a little bit better and a little bit, and the audience might, may never know. I mean, obviously they're right. seeing it for the first time, but, but I will say like the greats, they never, ever phone it in. They never do anything less than 100%. And they listen to themselves and to the audience, and they're not afraid to change it. And by that, I mean, like, and, I, and the two things I think probably do go hand in hand. Like, they will tailor each performance to that night, to people that are there and the energy that's coming from everyone else it's always alive it's a moving target it's you're not trying to do the same thing every night yes you have to recreate you have to recreate certain things to make the story work but within that it has to be organic it has to be fresh and keeping yourself alive and new and inconsistent in other words like consistency is important because you want to you want to be good every time but you also you want to follow the impulses as they come to you. Mercedes was really like the queen of that. It is really the queen of that. She was so alive on stage, right there with you every single second. And if you didn't, I mean, like you couldn't, you could not back off. You could not, when you're on stage with her, you have to be, you have to be as with her as she is with you. And and that, that was, that was incredible. Uh, you know, like, and that she didn't come in, you know, when we closed the show at the, at the party, they asked me if I would say a few words. And I said, I hope that everyone here at some point has a job where two thirds of the way through their work day, Mercedes rule comes on <laughs> and you have to do a scene with her. In Torch Song, I had like two thirds of a play before she even showed up. Mm-hmm. And then she came out and just, and I had to like catch up with her. It infused new. I, I saw it. I saw it twice. One on some Broadway and twice when you guys did it off Broadway. And you're right. She's so alive in every moment. And when she would come on, the place just lit up. Let's talk about Torch Song a bit, how it came to you. Torch Song was a play that I, you know, I remember reading in a corner of my theater program in high school. I remember reading it and thinking, my God, what is this? And learning a lot, not just about theater, but about being gay from that play. I mean, I was, you know, a kid and 
certainly not out. And, and that play taught me a lot about, about relationships, about, about what I might face and about, you know, anatomy, things like that. There's a lot going on in that play and <laughs> never thought I, I would ever be an Arnold. I thought I might, maybe I'm an Ed. That's certainly who I related to, you know, when I was in high school in Texas in the 90s. When Richie Jackson first approached me several years ago about maybe doing it, I, I thought he was crazy. And I didn't really know Richie, so I didn't, I didn't know that he was like legit. Um, I was like, who's that guy? I don't even know that guy. And, and he thinks I should do Torch Song, whatever. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But then as I got to know him through his husband, Jordan, I realized, oh, this guy is legit. He is an actual producer. And he represents Harvey Firestein, so he means this. And, but I was like, I, but you know, like, what am I going to do? I don't know how to make this happen. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the next step would be. And then um, Moises Kaufman and I met through my friend Jessica Chastain, who was my classmate at Juilliard. I went to see her in The Heiress, and Moises directed that, and he was there, and and we became Facebook friends. And he said he wanted to work with me, and I said I would love to work with you. I think you're amazing. And he said, What do you think about Torch Song? And I said, this is so interesting. You're the second person with power who said that. And so I put him and Richie together and they talked and they met. And I think they met with, I think Moises and Harvey met. And then they asked me to come to CAA and sit at a conference room table and read the play with, an, with actors. Uh, we read the whole play. Or I guess it would be the version that Harvey sort of short. We didn't read like the, new, the newer version. Yeah, the newer version, which is still three plays, but it's not, you know, quite as long. And, you know, he cut all the torch songs, the singer in the first part, and he, he truncated the middle play a bunch. So we read the whole thing. And, and at the end of it, Harvey said, you just want to wear a dress. <laughs> but then he wrote me and he said, let's do it. I, I, want, I want to do this. You're the guy. Let's find a place. And second stage was very quickly the first choice because their mission is, you know, American plays and they specialize in giving things a second look. And they agreed and it was set up. And then it was actually Ryan's, my partner Ryan's idea to cast Mercedes. We were trying to think who would be the most amazing person to play the mother. And he was like, what about Mercedes Rule? And I mean, I was immediately like, because for me, like as a kid, Big, the movie Big with Tom Hanks was like, such an important movie to me and she was the mom in that and so I always sort of related I don't know that I was quite as young as the kid in that but maybe I was I don't remember but I always thought of her as like mom and then I saw her in The Goat where my friend Jeffrey Carlson played her son mm -hmm. I saw her twice actually and I was like mom it's mom again so she was always kind of there's always this sort of like mom energy for me from her and she was funny and she was devastating and it worked out. I, I mean, you know, it was Ryan's idea, but everyone else loved the idea. I feel like it was one of those things that was meant to be and, and somebody would have thought of it eventually. And, and she was just so great from the beginning. All, I mean, just amazing from the very beginning. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as an actor, those scenes that you have at the end with her, that fight scene is something that you dream about as an actor. It is an alive scene where you can... It's just like a great tennis match. And every night you're out there. I mean, playing Arnold is a marathon. I mean, you hardly leave the stage. You must have been exhausted at the end of, what is two and a half hours? And then you got to come back the next day and do it again. 
when you finish a part and you have that downtime and you, you did off-Broadway, then you went to Broadway, you ever look back at things and say, oh, should have done it this way, or oh, it's, you know, or you're not that actor. No, I, I, always, are you always kind of always working on it? Like, is your script next to you and in your dressing room and you're like, okay, tonight, this didn't work last night, so I'm going to try this tonight. I would say I'm somewhere in between. If I was thinking, if I really started thinking back on that play, I probably would come up with a few ideas that I wish I'd tried. But on the other hand, I'm not an actor that like has the script at my dressing table and I'm always looking at it. But as a moment approaches when you're in, in a play, you can like see it ahead. You know, it's, you can do so many things at once when you're in the play, but you can sort of see a moment ahead and you can remember, oh yeah, that last night was something. And then as it gets to you, you can try something new or, or it will just organically like adjust in a certain direction. Sometimes it's the wrong direction and you have to like course correct or, you know, you get a note about it and you have to like kind of go back to what it was. But sometimes it can be like a really exciting thing that you're like finding. And with Torch Song, I was very lucky that I got to go back and do it again because I had about, you know, almost a year between Off-Broadway and Broadway. Mm -hmm. And I grew up a little bit and I played Hamlet in between. And, you know, like I, you know, learned about myself a little bit more and being away from the play gave us all the chance to like sort of think about it. And it was the whole cast came back and we were able to like, and we really felt like family. You know, the first time, the first time through, we had to pretend to be a family. And the second time through, we had sort of become a family. And that, that was really, really amazing. And then after, I mean, after we did Torch Song on Broadway, I went back to Hamlet, which was crazy. So like, to like go back and forth and do those two plays, which are very different, but also similar. I mean, they're both marathons. They both have mom issues. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and they both can tear, tear your heart out every night. Yeah. I mean, you are, yeah. speaking of which, what do you, when you do finish a marathon of a show like Hamlet or Torch Song or Buy or Seller, which we'll get to in a minute, what do you do? What do you, are you the actor that, you know, heads over to the restaurant with your friends? Or, I mean, you are ripping your guts out every night. For young actors listening, how do you bring yourself back down? How do you, do you go home, go right to bed? What do you do? I don't go right to bed, that's for sure. And I don't go out a lot. I'll go out sometimes, you know, but I really try not to go out two nights in a row. Depending on the role, like it can be very, uh, the voice, like with Torch Song and Buyer and Seller, like that was a lot on the voice. Hamlet, it's a lot of talking, it's a lot of shouting. And then it's a lot of, when you're like the star of something, it's a lot of greeting people. You know, you got a lot of people to say hi to and, and you got a lot of like, there's a schmooze factor. Mm -hmm. and, and that is even harder vocally because when you're on stage, you're using your voice properly. When you're in a green room backstage, you're either speaking quieter or if it's a, like, if the room is, gets loud, you have to sort of shout. And if you go to a bar or a restaurant, unless it's a quiet place, you're shouting. Green room. Um, and then, you know, if you're the star, you're also doing lots of interviews. So going out is tricky. And certainly, like, drinking is tricky. Not that I, you know, stop drinking when I'm in a play. Uh, depending on the play, sometimes I drink more. Um, <laughs> but but I, I don't have, I guess I don't have a hard and fast rule. Like, 
It just depends how you feel. Depends. Yeah, it depends on the depends on the play. It depends on how you feel, and you know, and, and also like when it comes to having guests, sometimes it's the only chance you have to see people. When you're in a play, you're working when everyone else is socializing. Sometimes you're sort of like, well, I'm not going to see this person if I don't go out with them after the show. So let's do it. And I'll sleep in tomorrow or, or whatever. But I'm lucky that I'm busy and I get myself into a lot of projects. And so even when I'm in a play, I'm usually busy during the day. I usually figure out a way to make myself busy. And, you know, with Grand Horizons, I rehearsed Grand Horizons for three, the entire time we were in the rehearsal room, I was performing in a bright room called Day at yeah. the public. And so from the, from the time we went into tech for a bright room called Day until the time we opened Grand Horizons, which was like about three months, I was working day and night. Because when you're in tech, it's all day. When you're in previews, you rehearse in, in the day and then you perform at night. We opened bright room called Day. And then literally three days later, I started rehearsal for Grand Horizons. By the time we finally opened Grand Horizons and I was just doing the play at night, I was so tired. Yeah, I um, bet. So when we closed that play, I, I was, I, I mean, I was sad to see it go. You never want to play to close, but my body was ready and my brain was ready to like take a break. And also, so you, you've been you know, enjoying this kind of break. I mean, it's, it's kind of been probably good for you spending time with Ryan and probably sleeping a lot and just resting your voice and your code. You know, I want to touch on buyer seller. You know, since we are the Lucille Lortel Theater, you won a Lucille Lortel Award. You've won two, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Written by John Tolens, who incidentally, John and I went to high school together. Oh my God. And yeah, he's, he's much, much older than me. <laughs> he's not, but John was always a star of every show and he's just an incredible writer. Take me on like just a five-minute journey of the Streisand meets Yuri meets Tolens. Well, um, I met John casually somewhere at the theater or something and immediately knew who he was because I knew his play, The Twilight of the Golds. I worked on it in high school, or I think, and, or knew people who worked on it in high school, and I love that play. And, I, and, and so I knew it, and I said, oh, you wrote Twilight of the Golds. And he was very excited that, you know, that somebody, you know, I mean, I think as any playwright is, that, that to, to be known, it's, it's, it's just great. Especially like the way that I knew his play. So we, we were like casual friends and I did some readings of a play of his. And then he ended up being a writer on this sitcom I was on called Partners. And so we became pals, really pals out in LA. We were both New York transplants in LA and we would hang out and, you know, watch movies and, you know, buddies on set and things like that. And it was during that time that he said, I've written this play and I'd love for you to read it. It's, it's something that I wrote for Jesse Tyler Ferguson, but you'd be great in it too. And I'd love you to take a look at it. And I was like, uh, sure, I'll take a look at it. Kind of, uh, but, you know, I mean, happy to read anything that somebody I admire writes, but also like, I'm sure Jesse will be very good in this. <laughs> the good news was Partners got canceled and Modern Family did not. So um, oh, wow. Jesse wasn't available. And Hi, Jesse. <laughs> and, uh, and then something fell out at the Rattlestick. And so the artistic director at the time was David Van Asselt. And he said, can you put this together pretty quickly? And John said, well, I have this actor. And Jesse gave his permit. Jesse is a really, really lovely guy. And he said, go for it. I don't want to hold you up. If you have an opportunity, take it. Within like weeks, we were in rehearsal. It was the, the shortest incubation period of a new play 
off-Broadway in history. A solo play at that? A solo play, yeah. Truthfully, it did not go through very many changes. What John wrote initially is basically what the play is. I mean, it got a little shorter and a few tweaks here and there. And then occasionally he would say something like, you're saying this, but I wrote that, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> because it would just come out of my mouth a little bit differently than he wrote it. Mm-hmm. And, and he would like sort of let me, let me do that. I think in part because I had so much to learn, but in part, I think he just also like knew like it would sound more real if it came out of my mouth a different way, you know, but it was a play like I, I was sort of like ending my life in LA after the show closed and after the pilot ended and, and then coming back and Ryan and I were on a flight together and I was like, would you just read this play that, that I might be getting myself into? Because it was a big risk, you know, like doing a one man show is a big risk. And I was just coming off of a, of a TV show. And like the other option was to try to get on another TV show right away. And I sort of had a hunch that this could be a cool thing, but I wasn't sure. So I was like, Ryan, would you just read this? And he read one page we were on a plane and he read one page and he turned to me and said, I already think you should do it. I mean, that was a big vote of confidence coming from him and, you know, who knows me and my work ethic and my career and everything. And it turned out to be an extremely special thing. And we were totally sold out at the Rattlestick for six weeks or something, six or eight weeks, and then went down for a month and reopened a, a commercially at the Barrow Street, ran there. It, I did it there for like 10 months, nine months, something like that. And then it kept running after I left. I left to go on tour. The show recouped in nine weeks. Wow. We did it on tour. I did it in London and then did it at uh, one, one last engagement at the Westport Country Playhouse. And it was filmed for WNET, Channel 13. It was almost four years ago was the last run I did. But I did dust it off and relearn it about six weeks ago for the Stryker Center. The Stryker Center at Temple, Temple Emanuel on the Upper East Side is doing a Barbara Streisand retrospective. You're telling a gay Jew that? I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and so they, they asked me if I'd come and do the play. And I was really excited to because I've been sort of wanting to go back to it. And, and you know, you talk about like revisiting a part. I did that play 600 times the first time around over about three or four years between off, off, off tour, London. You know, I did, I did a lot of performances and I knew that thing inside and out. And after four years, going back to it was fascinating. There was so many things that, and the way in which it would come back, the way that my brain had sort of saved it, it was still there. Yeah. That's fascinating to know about. Yeah. Sometimes it would like take a little prompting and sometimes it would take, I would have to remind myself what I did physically and then the line would come back, which is really interesting. And then sometimes I would get to, I had this wonderful guy named Nick Corey, who's a director and also an actor who's played the role. He helped me relearn it and restage it and stuff. So he would be on book for me and I would get to something and I would be like, don't tell me it's something funny. I would know that like a joke was coming or a laugh was coming, but I wouldn't know what it was. I would just like, my body would remember the sensation of, of it before my brain would remember the words. So it was really cool to do. And, and after, after doing it again, we sort of, the Pride Plays guys and I talked about, it's also the 25th anniversary of the Rattlestick, which is where it began. And since Rattlestick and Pride Plays are so in cahoots, we decided to put on Buyer and Seller for two nights as a benefit for Pride Plays and the Rattlestick. And that was supposed to be a week from today. 
but it's not going to happen. So we're going to reschedule. We're still going to do it somehow. We're going to figure out how to, how to, cause it's sold out in like two days. I went cause you had one date that had to be canceled because I guess you were working on a show and then it was scheduled like the next month or something. How'd you find your, your Barbara voice, which was so, so good. And we worried about that. Was it, you know, I was nervous about it. I never, cause I never done drag or anything. And also I, I didn't want to do like an impression. I didn't want it to be, you know, like SNL mm-hmm. because Barbara has to do real things. She has to be really real in that play. It's not just a joke. And she's, I believe, very sympathetic character. So you wanted to, you really wanted to believe that it's her. But also, so I was nervous. When I was a kid, my mom, my mom is a, is, is a big fan of Barbara's. And I remember very vividly in one of those very spongy, one of those very spongy ages where things just sink in, you know, when you're like in your teenage years and, and you start to fall in love with things and they really sink in. I remember watching her Barbara's comeback concert, 95 or six or something like that. Where she four. Is it nice? Madison Square Garden? Yes. Madison Square Garden. Yes. With the yes. black dress up to the... With, okay. Yeah, the amazing sets. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Marvin Hamlish, yep. 90. Marvin Hamlish, as if I never said goodbye, opens the show. Yes. And so yes. I remember watching... Yeah. yeah. Watching that with my mom on TV and then listening to the CD, mm-hmm. the double disc CD. And I knew it really well. I mean, it, it also, I knew it really well. And that was... Really like those, the banter in that, it was the banter, you know, like the songs, sure, but it's the banter of her in that, the scene she'd play with her, you know, her invisible therapist, Therapist, all that stuff was really, it was really easy for me to access in my memory. And then her comedies were really helpful, like What's Up Doc and Alan the Pussycat, but, and Hello Dolly, but like what was most helpful were her recent interviews and Meet the Fockers. Because in Meet the Fockers, she's really funny, really funny, and kind of sexy. Yeah. And uh, let her hair down. Not- yeah. And so that really helped with the whimsical parts of, of Barbara in the play. And then the interviews, which is usually quite serious, really helped with the more serious stuff. But then also, <laughs> you know, like my best friend growing up, it was, is Jewish, and his mom. And we're in Texas, and you know, there were not that many Jewish people in Texas, but his mom was and is, you know, a very colorful character and, and always kind of scared me a little bit. And, and so I often thought of her and she, my, the thing that I would always kind of go back to with her was this time I saw her after I had been on The Good Wife. I was on The Good Wife. I was, it was a very quick scene first episode and then the next episodes I ran into her in Texas I was visiting and I saw her mm-hmm. and she said we, we, we talked and then she was like saw you on the good wife parts <laughs> <laughs> and it was so I was like oh here's so Barbara that's such a Barbara thing to say um, and you know I mean I've been in New York for so long and so, it's so second nature to me and mm. and all of that like I feel like all that was really I would say, you know, being Jewish, I'm going to make you an honorary one. You've played so many Jews so, so beautifully well, and you, you inhabit. And I love your, the way that you're able to, to change your voice and your vocal patterns and uh, even the treble and the bass in your voice from Arnold to, to all of these parts. Listen, Michael, I'm, I'm a big fan. 
not only I think you're a magnificent actor, but I think as a person, we have a lot of mutual friends and everybody says the same thing about you. You know, you are, you're a mensch, you're a good guy and you do a lot for our community and you do a lot for theater. I'm going to ask you one of our last questions, which we like to make a tagline. So make it good. You go back and forth between Broadway and off-Broadway and film and TV and you're directing. We didn't even talk about bright colors and bold patterns. I'll put it up on the website, but uh, tell me why Off-Broadway is so important to you and and why do you keep coming back? Well, Off-Broadway is the place where I think you can really take risks. You, You have audiences of people who really want to be there. It's a place for theater lovers to see shows and for real artists to make shows. That's not to say by any means, that real artists don't make TV and film. Of course, of course. But it is, given that it's not a place to get rich and it is not a place to get famous, it's pure. It's a pure art form. And I think that the people who come to Off-Broadway to see actors and directors and writers take those risks are on your side in a way that even if they're critical, they're still on your side. They're on the side of the theater. They're on the side of Off-Broadway. In the way that like, Broadway audiences, and obviously I love being on Broadway, but a Broadway audience will very often sit down having no idea what they're watching mm-hmm. because it was recommended to them. And that's a whole other exciting thing. Same with television. You're flipping channels. You might not know what you're seeing. But the curation of the, the artist-to-audience relationship off-Broadway is extremely special and definitely what makes going back always very exciting. One more question. What's your hope after this pandemic starts coming to an end? What's your hope for off-Broadway and our community and, and for everything? My hope is that the theater especially finds a way to tell the stories of this pandemic in a beautiful, inspiring an uplifting way, the same way that they always have after crises. Because the theater is going to be hardest hit by this, given its nature of congregation, I think that the theater will be proudest to return and the most thoughtful when they return. And I just hope that people, and I trust that people, I mean, the theater has survived plagues before, lots of them. And we might not quite know as a modern audience what it's like to totally shut down the theater for this period of time, but it's happened before and it's come back. And it's exciting to see how theater makers are using this space. That kind of resilience is so beautiful and impressive. And I can't wait to see what they do when when we're allowed to be back on stage again, because it'll be awesome. Amazing way to end. Michael, thank you so much. The hour goes by so, so quickly. I can't believe that was an hour. I know. And that's our show. Thanks for listening to Live at the Lortel. While this pandemic goes on, we are asking our listeners to please consider donating to the Actors Fund at actorsfund.org to help support theater artists. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer Eric Ostro, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart, and pressed by Chris Kanarek. The show's production manager is Zebulon Brown, house manager is Charles Shipman, Box office manager is Daigoro Hirohata. Social media by Mia Radia. Thanks to Nancy Hurwitz. Live at the Lortel is recorded at the Lucille Lortel Theater in New York City by Brian Falk, Abacus Entertainment.